To the next community podcast. This is episode 27. I am Angela Luciani along with Dwayne Lesner, who we'll hear from later in the podcast. Dwayne and I chat with Eric Hammersley, who's a security architect at Nutanix, and we talk about all things security. But before we jump into it, I'd like to remind folks that Nutanix is running a coding challenge called Total Recode, where you can win some awesome prizes. These prizes range from $2,000 in cash to a $4,000 drone. So I want to encourage folks to go to Nutanix.com slash Nutanix-coding-challenge and read up on the contest, jump into it, but you need to hurry because the contest ends August 20th. So with that, let's get into the interview. Hello and welcome to the Nutanix Next Community Podcast. Today with us, we have Eric Hammersley talking about security and joining me as well is Angelo Luciani. So welcome uh, to the podcast. It's been a while since I've been on. Thanks, Eric, for joining us today. The main topic of discussion is talking about security, what's happening in the wild and what and what Nutanix is doing to maybe help uh, help out uh, the data center side, or at least the infrastructure side for sure. So, Eric, why don't you just give uh, kind of a Cliff Notes version of uh, what you do at Nutanix and what you've been up to? Uh, sure, Dwayne, uh, Angela, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk to you. So like you said, my name is Eric Hammersley. I do security, I'm a security architect here at Nutanix. So my job day in, day out is to, to monitor the platform and the software, watch how things are being developed, and watch the industry and the trends within the security realm of the industry around vulnerabilities or new exploits or new methods or methodologies around software development when it comes to security and best practices. So day in and day out, I, I spend the majority of my time interfacing with our software development teams and our project management teams to ensure that our intrinsic view of security from the ground up and our development of the products is met and we're following those guidelines. And then I also spend a fair amount of time keeping an eye on the industry trends around common vulnerability enumerations or CVEs or other software vulnerabilities that may show up in various pieces of uh, software that we happen to use on our product. And then, of course, coordinating the patching or the rollout of fixes to support that. And that pretty much sums up what I do. Uh, while it only sounds like a few points, it's actually quite a lot of quite a lot of detail there. Sounds a lot to me. I was going to ask, how does one even get into doing that as a kind of a, a job function? I think when I was on the customer side, you know, I pretty much ran away from security, you know, as fast as I could um, and then really ran fast if the auditors were coming around. So, well, maybe you can kind of give your take on what you feel the industry, the change towards security, if it's, you know, changing from what I just mentioned. Uh, so first you ask how, how you would really get into that. So I, I've spent about 20 years of my career in Department of Defense work in the United States. So that is a very security conscious, very security oriented environment. Um, you know, I've done everything from being a, I've been a, a enterprise engineer, a software engineer, an enterprise architect, and even a chief engineer towards the end uh, for government agencies. No matter how involved you're in with whether it be, you know, platform security, operation, uh, operating system security, application security, 
um, or, or architecture or design, security is always at the root of all of those conversations. So it's kind of a skill set that you develop over time, having been in an industry that's very focused on security. It used to be anyway that security kind of made life harder. And so it's interesting that you kind of were, were taking on that challenge. And then people like me with an old school way of thinking, trying to run away from security, you know, it's hard to get involvement. So I kind of feel like it would be like a thankless job. <laughs> and it was kind of reason, like, how did you get go down that track? So I find it kind of interesting. So you bring up a good point, and that actually is something that we're very keen here at Nutanix in solving, is all of those years of service in the government sector have taught me a few key things about security and the implementation of security in a platform or software that's consumed. And one of the key things that I took away from all of that time in that, in that, sec- in that portion of my career was the lack of involvement from the vendor side of things. So when a customer would purchase a piece of software or a solution to implement within their data center to meet the security requirements or the, the patching or vulnerability requirements or the hardening of that software or system within their data center, it was very much on the customer's shoulders to implement those things. So the customer was coming up with exactly what had to be done to meet the requirements in their agency or in their vertical, uh, whatever requirements are leveraged against them. And the customer was having to figure out how patches were done. The vendors are still very hands-off when it comes to the requirements, security requirements and patching for customers. So that's one of the things that we're trying to do here at Nutanix. And one of the reasons why we've gone to this intrinsic built-in model of hardening and security requirements within our product as we develop it is that no customer should be a security expert on our product more than we are. We are the experts of our product. We design it, we develop it, and we market and distribute that. So that makes us the obvious experts in how that product should be secured or hardened or patched. And leaving it in the hands of the customers to continue to figure out how they implement hardening how they secure it within their environment, and then, oh, by the way, not supporting them when they do place those hardening requirements on their software is absolutely not the way we can do business anymore. So Nutanix has taken a different approach to that and that we're delivering products that are already like that out of the box and fully supported. I think what you're referring to mostly is kind of the the inception of the, the security development lifecycle. Can you maybe, uh, like a high cliff notes, I think you've already kind of indirectly talked about it, but how the engineering org, the security-minded uh, people, or I, I think as they're affectionately called, the insert team, work together to hammer out, you know, what goes in what without really, you know, breaking everything? Sure. I mean, it, it is it is a tricky proposition on the face of it. Essentially, what you do, is, or what we've done here at Nutanix, is we've created, as, as you said, the security development lifecycle. And the goal of that is to ensure that as software processes iterate, as we create new features, as we code those features, and as we put those features into products that go out the door to customers, we're looking at security requirements at every step of that iteration. So instead of an after-the-fact bolt-on approach where you would create a feature, put it in the product, distribute the product, and then afterwards come back and figure out how to secure it and how to harden it, 
We do that all intrinsically as part of the iteration of that process. What that gives us is agility. So the ability to be agile as we're developing, in this case, for this example, 4.1.3, our software release for that, we received several critical vulnerability enumerations or CVEs during the development cycle of that product release. So due to the agility that exists from the software development lifecycle, we were able to integrate those CVEs into the platform and release them on time without delay to ensure that customers had software platforms that were not vulnerable to CVEs that existed prior to the software being released. So it's all about agility and speed. Yeah, I guess the, when the hole is open, you need to plug it quick. It's also kind of interesting on looking on the outside when you you hear of like a five-year-old hole that just kind of, I don't know, I don't know if there's like a moratorium on like announcing things like with other companies. Like eventually if Windows doesn't do something I don't know, some guy gets to tell the world that here's this hole and then people kind of run for the, the police cars and try to fix things. I don't know if there's any insight to that, but I, I kind of find that part interesting. It, it is interesting that you bring that up, and it seems to be a growing trend here as of late where security researchers find vulnerabilities in, in various products and they report those vulnerabilities to the responsible companies, and then they place a time bomb on it. And they say, if you don't resolve this, or if you cannot release or disclose that this vulnerability exists, we're going to go public with it. Now, there's mixed feelings in the security industry as to whether or not that's a good thing or that's a bad thing. However, the general intent of it is, is in my opinion, good, because the intent is to force companies to ensure that their products meet certain standards. And if a vulnerability is known, and the company still continues to release product with a known vulnerability in it, that's unfair. And it's unfair to the customers, and it's especially difficult if you don't know that it exists. So some feel as though it's somewhat of a ransom, whereas I'm not so sure I feel that way. I almost believe that it's a responsibility of us as consumers of everyone's software or products to ensure that we all live under somewhat of a safe semblance of a society or a software that we consume um, from that regard. No, I think, I think that's good. I think it also kind of, how do you, you know, you can't really claim that you're always secure. And I think that's probably why when, when I talk to, you know, people within your team, like you and Simon, it's really talking about hardening and like kind of how you keep track of it at least because you know you're only you're only good as the last time you you checked your security posture so it kind of like brings into um, some of the the stigs that have been developed uh, for Nutanix for the our virtual storage controller maybe you can talk a bit like you know what is a stig and how are they being used at Nutanix so absolutely the the thought process here is is that our we're, we're the security experts of our product and there are certain regulatory compliance requirements out there that our customers have to meet, whether it be SOX or PCI or DOD uh, security requirements or NIST. There are several things out there that our customers are having to consume and implement in their data centers. So what we've done is we've taken these requirements and specifically the ones from NIST, the 800-53 requirements, and we've consumed those and ensured that our product from the base up through our security development lifecycle process have included all of the security controls 
that are called out within, in this case, the 800-53 from NIST, then we've created a set of documentation to go along with that. Now, normally, a STIG, which is a Security Technical Implementation Guide, that's a DOD jargon for security documentation, essentially. But we've developed this STIG, but ours is more of a point of reference for you. It's, a, it's something for the customer to look at and say, this is how they accomplish this. Because we've already done it for them. You don't have to painstakingly go through 300 pages of a STIG like you do with other, th- with other items in the data center and manually iterate through all these checks in order to harden your platform. We've hardened it for you out of the box. You can't change it. You cannot turn it off. It's there. It works. And it's supported. And then we've created the STIG documentation that allows the customers to provide that to their regulatory bodies, to their IA departments, um, to prove and show that these controls are, in fact, in place on the product. So, Eric, if an audit team, and you know, you clarify this for me, but if an audit team wanted to see the monthly or quarterly security posture of the servers, for example, is it like a one-click situation where you can do one click and you get a report and then you just hand this report over to to the auditors, et cetera? So that's a fantastic question. It really leads us and allows us to talk about the point-in-time security model that we've lived in for so many years in this industry in that when you harden or secure a platform, it typically is only secure at the very moment at which you do it. And then from that point forward, you may or may not necessarily know the posture of that platform. So what we've done, and to answer your question, is we provided a series of simple reports that can be run on demand at any time that will take the exact findings in the STIG and check them live at that moment on our platform to ensure that they are compliant. And it will provide you a report of compliance, which ones are, which ones are not. And the ones that are not compliant, it will revert them back to a compliant state all automatically for you. And you can just, you can kick those off at any point in time that you want to. So it's very possible to start iterating those security checks from a point in time to a weekly, uh, monthly, uh, semi-annual type basis with your IA compliance teams in order to ensure that security postures maintained. Yeah, that's great. Cause I, uh, you know, when, when I used to be a customer, I recall monthly having to print off uh, a checklist, if you will, and sort of go through the checklist and go to each individual server and see if it was compliant, if it wasn't, et cetera. So yeah, that, that, interesting to hear. Absolutely. I mean, it's painful and there's a lot of overhead involved in that. Uh, and what we've done is provide those reports and allowed you to automate it to where you could even set up cron jobs if you wanted that would automatically kick off these compliance reports and drop them in a location for you to where there's literally no overhead to that at all. And you can get your compliance reports in a periodicity that's required for your IA teams. And you lose that overhead piece of all that manual checking that you've had to deal with with other products or, or products in the past. I think that's kind of interesting on the stick side, but I also find it really awesome that we actually show what's not fixed. You know, we're not trying to hide it. I know there was one fix I was kind of going through some internal stuff and it it kind of gave the mention that it didn't apply because we are an appliance. What's your take on that? Because Eric, I wonder, you know, the kind of leading question in my mind is, is hyperconverged more secure, less secure than traditional infrastructure? And I think you've answered some of that, but 
Uh, well, really, it boils down to the difference between what's referred to as a general purpose operating system or a GPOS and more of an application or utility-specific operating system. So while the, the two may be based on the same operating system fundamentals or even the same operating system packages, when you start to when you leave that area of a general purpose operating system, like anyone would install a Linux you know, a, an Ubuntu Linux box or a Windows server, and you start leaning towards where we've gone in the hyperconverged route with more of a utility specific type appliance, you actually are put into a situation where you can really significantly reduce the surface area of attack or vulnerability in those operating systems. So by us going to the utility specific route or the appliance route, we're able to fine tune and reduce the packages that are present on the operating system, reduce the surface area of attack and the surface area of vulnerability. So as we reduce the packages necessary to only what is required for the product to function, we're actually removing a great deal of opportunity there for CVEs or other possible vulnerabilities or exploits that would happen to come out in the industry. We're removing those out of the equation. So we're giving you a leaner, meaner machine with much less surface area for someone to pick at. So that's good. So we have, you know, we have the we have the reports and you know a means of checking them. How are we going to, you know, remediate those those things quickly? What's the action plan to get that work done? Like I I've seen over 500 checks, so like I don't I don't want to be the guy that has to go and fix all of them if, you know, Angelo gets in there and starts changing things. Uh, so it's a, it's a great question and I'm sure a lot of people have that on their mind. I too have been the one sitting in my cube going through 500 checks on other operating systems in my career and it's not fun. So this is actually very exciting, some really innovative stuff we're doing around this. So what we've done is we've, we've taken this model that we wanted to adopt. We've taken the intrinsic security, the security development lifecycle. We've really started hardening the product at its core and its base as it's being built. And we've provided the documentation for that out of the box. So the next logical step is how do we, how do we maintain this and how do we automate this process of check and remediation, not only on demand, which we can already do today in our reports, but what's our next step down the road in the future for auto mitigation and auto reporting of this. And essentially what we've done is we've taken SaltStack, which is an automation framework not too dissimilar from Chef or Puppet, and we've taken SaltStack and integrated that into our platform to where we actually have Salt through a series of Salt state files checking the security posture of the product in an automated fashion. It can't what this gives us is the ability for Salt to recognize a reduction in a security policy or a relaxation of a security measure that we've put into place that's documented in the STIG and act upon it without user intervention. So this allows us to give you an automated security posture in a sense that there's no more user interaction that's required in order to run a report and see that a that a check it has you know fallen out of compliance. So what SALT does for us is it automates those states, checks the compliance of those states on a periodic basis, and then if something's out of compliance, it will actually perform the remediation for you 
in an automated fashion. Now, all of this is logged to where if SALT detects a change in a security posture, it will log the date and time, what that change was, where it occurred. It will perform the remediation and then log the remediation information, when it was remediated, how it was remediated, and what took place. So it gives you the ability to get completely away from a point-in-time model around security and start entering into the world of more around uh, a risk management framework type world where you can automate and just view the specifics of actions that are taken by the platform to ensure a posture is in place. What you've just told me is that people will be able to know the exact moment in time that I scream out loud because I'm going to get slapped for it, but I like usually shut off all the IP tables on the CVMs so I can easily get to all the, the ports and stuff I need to instead of doing IP table rules. So, you know, this is going to remediate itself, whatever it's set to weekly. I'm going to lose access to stuff, which I shouldn't have open anyway. But it's That's exactly what it's doing. It's exactly what's going to happen. When you do that very, very naughty thing, SALT is going to recognize that that's done, and it's not going to allow it. It's going to remediate that reduction in posture and put it back to where it belongs. So IA and compliance teams and regulatory groups and auditors are going to know and have the satisfaction in believing that the security posture of a system is maintained throughout its life cycle instead of just at the point in time at which they reviewed it. Yeah, so from going from weekly, uh, well, from yearly, I guess, to weekly or whatever you set it to. Um, uh, absolutely. It's, it's absolutely customizable. And you're right. That's a huge jump from a yearly audit to so weekly or even daily if you want type of check and remediation. It's fantastic from the world of, of IA compliance or regulatory compliance. We've talked a lot on like, um, you know, vulnerabilities, kind of like the access side. I don't know. It's probably more hands off, but um, on the disk encryption, we do, we do offer it on certain models. Anything interesting there from an industry perspective on, on how we operate or is it the same everywhere? So I think some of the things that we do interesting there is the fact that we already offer a highly scalable and highly performant solution as it is. And then we bring in on disk encryption, we bring in self-encrypting drives to that in order to give a customer data at rest capability for regulatory compliance or whatever their security needs are that dictate that at no loss at scale and at no loss in performance. And I think that is huge for us in the fact that we can add that feature and functionality of something that is normally looked at as a very specialized and very specific use case. And we can add that to the platform to allow them to scale and still consume the goodness of the platform without losing any feature or functionality from that product set. Now, the, the SEDs and the, the, the KMS servers and the way that those function is all through the standard open KMIP protocol. So it's, it's future-proofed in that regard to where, you know, we have certain KMS providers that can, that can do your key management. So we can integrate into existing systems you may already have in the data center uh, for key management of those SED devices and the, the self-encrypting drive models that we have. So it keeps it very agile and very usable for the customer if they need to consume that level of data at rest encryption. So you, you do need a separate KMS server for the disk encryption? Is that what you're uh, saying? Actually, I'm, gl I'm glad you brought it up because uh, you're right. I need to clarify that. Not necessarily. So 
There are other reasons in a data center as to why you may have a key management server. There's several different scenarios or use cases. You may have a, um, a safe net or perhaps a Vermetric KMS server already in your data center serving other purposes. You can leverage existing KMS infrastructure for use with our self-encrypting drive products. So we have tested and qualified that, they, that everything works um, and that we support uh, the SafeNet and the Vermetric line of KMS uh, devices, which are all FIPS 142- compliant and have all the security measures already in place. So if they have them in their data center, we can reutilize that equipment. However, we also have partnerships with those companies to where if this if Nutanix is your first step or foray into a KMS type scenario where you need that KMS server, we absolutely have the expertise to help you get that in-house and get that set up for, for the solution. Interesting. Yeah, I wasn't really totally sure. It's good to have, uh, you know, some some people looking after the certificate side because it's always kind of been a pain uh, for myself when uh, when working with VDI. So do you have to grab a certificate from every server or you grab it from every device, like every hard drive? So, I mean, we're, we're dipping into how SEDs function at their base level. I can tell you that we, we automate the entire process from within Prism, our, main, our HTML5-based management portal uh, for the cluster. So what it really boils down to is that every node in a Nutanix appliance has to have a certificate. And that certificate is issued by the KMS server. So Prism automates that process for you. You step through a wizard. It'll create the certificate requests. It'll send them to the KMS servers. The KMS server will sign that request and return that signature back to the node. At that point, the node has the ability to authenticate itself to the KMS server. What this gives you is a secure mechanism at which for the node to request the key encryption keys from the KMS server that belong to the disks that belong to that node. So that's how the certificates work um, in the SEDs. Wow, that's pretty awesome. The only thing I kind of wanted to, to touch on was the dual factor authentication. We do support card readers, but is that is that kind of using the same certificate management or is that is that separate? Um, so certificates with regard to, let's say, smart card readers would be a different scenario. So certificates and smart card readers for like two-factor authentication into PRISM would be authentication from the certificate to, let's say, Active Directory, whereas um, the SEDs would be authentication from the node to the KMS server. The underlying principle is exactly the same, though, because essentially what it is is mutual TLS authentication. You're doing it between the client and the PRISM for two-factor authentication, and you're doing it between the node and KMS for SED collection of a KEK for the uh, SEDs on the node. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that gives some clarity on it. I just wasn't, wasn't totally sure. That's what, all I had for security topics. I don't know, Eric, anything that kind of jumps out in your mind that is, is interesting on, on your side of the fence that you want to touch on? I think what's most interesting to me right now being in the security industry, being in the security field uh, and job that I'm in is just how explosive it's been over the past few years in terms of 
not only vulnerabilities and hacks and things of that nature, but the absolute attention that the necessity around good security policies and practices are in your IT infrastructure has just really started to explode over the past few years. I, of course, have been doing this for 20 years. So I, you know, I've been doing this for a long time before the public at large really was made aware of some of the issues that existed. However, what I think is really cool about being in the industry and being at Nutanix right now is the fact that as this need and this this issue explodes in the media and in the industry, we're on the front lines addressing those problems already ahead of the curve to provide customers with that extra that extra bit that they need or the extra hardening or the extra attention they need from their vendor of choice in the data center in order to meet some of these requirements or some of these hardships that the industry started throwing at them just from the sheer amount of attention and media that's come from a lot of the vulnerabilities and issues in security uh, that's happened over the past few years. So the the security guy went from being hated to being wanted is kind of, uh, I guess, the general gist. Uh, I, I think I think security guys, it's a mixed bag. I, I, I think everything's what you make of it. But um, uh, most certainly, I believe that the security aspect of any acquisition today is absolutely more critical than it was five years ago, uh, maybe even as much as three years ago. So the ability for customers to properly ascertain the security posture and the security compliance of a product out of the box at acquisition is key. And it's going to become even more so as we move forward into the future. So I think it's a really exciting time to be around in security, and I also think it's a really critical turning point for customers around security compliance and regulatory compliance in their selection of products that they use in the data center. I don't know if it applies here. Usually when kind of wrapping up the podcast, you know, I'll kind of ask, you know, where can we stock you? But maybe maybe that's not appropriate talking to a security guy. But where uh, where can people get a hold of you, Eric, uh, if they have questions? Um, or um, do you have a blog anywhere? Uh, so, I mean, several ways. I mean, obviously, um, Nutanix customers can always uh, can always leverage the security team through our absolutely amazing uh, team of support engineers. Um, if you have security or uh, vulnerability questions, you can also direct them directly to the security team, security at Nutanix.com. Um, and we also support encrypted emails. If you happen to have something that's sensitive that you want to discuss and you encrypt, you can find our public keys. They are available out there to to use. Um, I also have a, a, a VM field tips blog that I kind of do on the personal side. I talk about security topics and uh, some of the things we're doing in the product. Not nearly as active on there as I'd like to be, but that's at um, VM field tips. That's Victor Mike fieldtips.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Eric Hammersley. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time, Eric and Angelo. It, uh, it's been another great one and uh, look forward to getting this up uh, for the listeners. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I encourage you to follow Nutanix on Twitter for latest news and announcements. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And if you haven't done so already, download Community Edition and continue the conversation over at the next community at next.nutanix.com. And with that, for Dwayne Lesnar, I am Angelo Luciani, and we'll see you next time.